There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped him of his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the inhabitants of Jabez-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned him there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabez and fasted seven days. Well, we've had such a great time of worship this morning, Lord, of drawing close to you and a good time of fellowship, Father, and just uh, being with the saints. Now we pray, Lord, kind of the part of your service where we learn from your word and ask your Holy Spirit to give us insight and help us to apply it to our everyday lives. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The date was December the 9th, 1979, when 20-year-old John Bowen attended the Jets-Patriots game at Shea Stadium. It never occurred to him that it would be the last day of his life. At halftime, part of the entertainment was a performance of unusual-looking radio-controlled airplanes that flew around the football stadium. Shortly before the end of the 15-minute performance, a plane that was made to look like a flying lawnmower went out of control and flew to the stands where Bowen was seated. He was hit by the flying lawnmower and was rushed to the hospital where he died four days later. Who would have thought he would have been killed by a flying lawnmower at a football game? 
Hebrews 9.27 gives us this sober pronouncement. It is appointed for men to die once. Then after this comes the judgment. There are many appointments in life that we may miss or be late for. But excluding the rapture, this is one appointment that every one of us will keep. The question facing all of us is, are we prepared for that day? And the critical aspect of that is we don't know when that day will be. In August of 2005, more than 300 people were aboard Air Flight 358 when it crashed and came to a stop about 220 yards beyond the end of the runway in Toronto. Miraculously, no one died, and only 43 of the 309 people were even injured. In less than three minutes, all the people aboard were evacuated, and then the plane burst into flames. The one comment that caught my attention when I read that came from a 32-year-old man who said, I didn't want to die today. In one short sentence, he captured the sentiment of most of us. Yet the Census Bureau believes that one person dies every 12 seconds in the United States. If my math is correct, that means that approximately 7,200 people die each day in this country. The reason that that statement, I didn't want to die today, caught my attention is because it could easily be restated, I'm not ready to die today. I wonder how many of us are ready to die today. If you could choose the day of your death, what day would that be? Would it be today, tomorrow, or ten years from now? How would you go about making that choice? Most of us can sympathize with the old Woody Allen comment who said, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But we will be there. Ready or not, expected or unexpected, death will come. We try to ignore it. But some things in life remind us that today could be the day that we die. It could be a close call like those airplane passengers. Or maybe it's the funeral of a friend. Or maybe even a scene taken from the pages of the Bible. An old Jewish proverb says, Every man knows he will die, but no one wants to believe it. And many of us seem to unconsciously think that dying is what happens to other people, not me, not now, not today. But when we read these verses this morning, they remind us that all kinds of people die every day. That is why chapter 31 is so important, for it reminds us to look at this. And God tells us some very important things that can help us to be ready to die today, tomorrow, or whenever it comes our time to leave this world. We're going to finish our study of 1 Samuel today. We started it on September 14, 2014. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed teaching it. Look at verse 1 with me. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. If you remember, on the night before the events of 1 Samuel 31 at Endor, Saul had heard from Samuel these devastating words that were to hang heavily over the next day. 
Saul was told in chapter 28, verse 19, this. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Speaking of death. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So in one sense, therefore, the day of 1 Samuel 31 would bring no surprises. The death of Saul had been a long time coming, but it certainly wasn't unexpected. And yet, chapter 31 is riveting and deeply moving. And part of its impact, I think, lies in its brevity. Because it was at the very time that David was striking down the Amalekites far to the north and rescuing his people that Saul was confronted by the Philistines in the northern valley of Jezreel with the very opposite outcome. At about the same time, David has succeeded as comprehensively as Saul has failed. Now, if you remember from last time we were together, we were informed that David brought back everything. We are told in verse 2 that three of Saul's sons will die. Saul, who started out so well, now seems to see his entire life unravel before his very eyes. Maybe we could say Saul let his crown go to his head. Thank you, Blaine. I'll wait. I'll wait. Instead of obeying God, Saul takes a wrong turn and ends up doing all sorts of wicked things, from trying to murder David to turning into the occult instead of God for guidance. So it really doesn't shock us when someone like Saul dies, because we know that he who lives by the sword will also die by the sword. What does shock us is when a good man like Jonathan dies. Here is a prince of a man, loyal to God, a faithful soldier, loyal to his wicked father, but also loyal to his friend David. He is a man who trusted God and who could be trusted by others. Yet he dies on the same exact day in the same battle as his evil father Saul does. It just doesn't seem fair to us that good people like Jonathan dies. And yet it happens All of the time. But there are those who are somewhere in between who also die. Saul's army is made up of some who were really neither especially good nor especially wicked. They were just doing their duty, serving their country, their king, and their God. They are not particularly righteous or necessarily evil, which is my point. Everybody dies. You may be as brave and good as Jonathan or as twisted and evil as Saul, or even somewhere in between. But one thing is for sure, we will all die. You may be old or young, single or married, divorced or engaged. You might be at home or at work or at school. You might be sitting at the supper table, traveling down the road, or laying in a hospital bed. But there will come a day when you inhale your last breath, Your heart will pound out one last beat. Your spirit will leave your body, and you will die. It may be 20 years from now, later this year, or next month, or two weeks from now. Or maybe you'll die in the next 15 minutes, 
Although I would ask you to please wait until after the sermon is over. I have to admit that would provide a powerful illustration. But now, by now you're probably asking, why in the world, what's wrong with Pastor Bill? <laughs> why do I want to be reminded that I'm going to die? And the reason is, it's only when you learn to count your days that you can truly begin to make your days count. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days. We may apply our heart to wisdom. What is that saying? Simply, it is a wise and prudent person who has learned to live their lives with the understanding that everyone in here has an expiration date. Now, battling the Philistines, Saul saw his soldiers, including his own sons, fall all around him, for he himself felt the piercing pain of a Philistine arrow. One translation renders it this way. He was greatly distressed by reason of the archers. That's what's known as an understatement. With his sons dead at his feet, and the Philistine archers a short distance away and approaching, and perhaps with Samuel's words of the previous night ringing in his ears, Saul must have trembled with terror of the sure expectation that his life was almost over. Verse 4, please. And Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it. Otherwise, these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men on that day together. Listen carefully again to the summing up of that day. Thus Saul died and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all of his men, all on the same day. The Latin Vulgate says he caught an arrow in the abdomen, and it was a mortal wound. And as so often happens with a wound like that, Saul did not die immediately, but clung painfully to life. And as his life drained from him, he asked his armor-bearer to kill him. In spite of all the blessings that God has given to Saul and all the opportunities he had to grow spiritually, Saul at the end was unprepared to lead, unprepared to fight, and ultimately unprepared to die. And what does he mutter, I wonder, as he finally bites the dust in death? I'm not sure, and the Bible is inconclusive, but in my imagination I can hear him saying, I have played the fool. Now, his armor bearer refuses to kill him, perhaps by thinking of the command to do not touch the Lord's anointed. Saul appears now to have accepted the inevitability of his death, and he feared that the Philistines would kill him and then abuse him. But regardless of his reasons, you know what? You want to hear something incredibly ironic? A long time ago, Saul's armor-bearer had been a man named David. And on several occasions, David the armor-bearer had refused to kill Saul when he had the opportunity. Now, many years later, Saul asked another armor-bearer to kill him, the very thing his previous armor-bearer refused to do. I certainly wouldn't build a doctrine on that or anything, but I do find it fascinating. You see, he was concerned that the enemy would not humiliate him by torturing him, so he took it upon himself to end it all. 
because the Philistines were indeed notorious for abusing and humiliating victims, especially officers and kings. Saul feared that he would be tortured, and so he desires to die before this can happen. This reminds me of Adolf Hitler. Apparently, like Saul, Hitler did not want the enemy to sport with his body. He thought that they would embalm it and strut it across the countryside. So he and his wife sat in a room, and she took poison, and he ended his life with a revolver. Hitler had instructed his aides that when they found him dead, to drench his body with gasoline and then to burn it with fire. Then they were to take his ashes and place them in a bag and bury them so they could never be found. And that was Saul's attitude. Isn't it interesting? He's very concerned about his image with the enemy, but shows little concern for his relationship with God, whom he is about to meet. That happens when disobedience has dulled our senses. We're very, very concerned about what people will say. But somehow we've lost contact with what God thinks and with what God might say. The tragedy of this moment is deeply moving. At the heart of the tragedy is what we do not hear from the mouth of Saul. From him we do not hear, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is what David had probably cried on many occasions. It was, of course, what Jesus quoted from the cross. Saul seems to have accepted his God-forsakenness and surrendered himself to it. The narrative itself corresponds to Saul's silence. It, too, makes no reference to God in the account of Saul's death. Now, speaking of the manner of Saul's death, there is an ongoing debate. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, we're given the account of an Amalekite who comes to David with the news of the battle about Saul and the sons who were killed in it. I'll read to you the account. And David said to him, From where do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, How did things go? Please tell me. And he said, The people have fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan's son are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? The young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I said, Here I am. He said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Then he said to me, Please stand before me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was upon his arm, and I brought them here to my king, the Lord. Okay, now the question arises. Did Saul die at his own hand, or was he helped along by this Amalekite? There are great Bible scholars on each side of this question. In my opinion, it would seem as though Saul had attempted suicide but was unsuccessful. And one reason I think that is this. If I were going to come up with a story to impress David concerning Saul, I would certainly paint myself in a more heroic and courageous way. I wouldn't portray myself as someone who came up on a guy almost already dead 
and then just finished him off. If I was going to lie, I would say that I would fought 37 guards, and they all had swords. And all I had was my Swiss Army knife, but praise God, it was enough. <laughs> Plus, this man really has no reason to lie concerning these events. That's really open to debate, and it's not all that important. But if his report is true, as I believe, there's a fascinating caveat to this story, since this man was an Amalekite. What do I mean? Twenty-five years earlier, God said to Saul, I want you to kill every Amalekite. Why? The Amalekites were a constant problem for the people of Israel. As Israelites made their way to the Promised Land, the Amalekites would attack the back of the pack, where the older people and the mothers with babies and the sick and infirm and feeble would walk. That's the people they would come at. And therefore, because they showed no mercy... God declared to Moses that they were to war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. In 1 Samuel, God reiterated his charge against the Amalekites when he told Saul to destroy every last one of them. And Saul dutifully led the army in war against the Amalekites, but he didn't completely destroy them. When the battle was over, if you remember, he said to Samuel, Blessed be the Lord, we have done what the Lord has told us to do. We have been victorious over the Amalekites. But in actuality, they had not completely destroyed the Amalekites. They were supposed to kill everything, even the livestock. So Samuel asked, if that's true, then what's this bleeding of the sheep that I hear in my ears? Oh, said Saul, well, those are a few that we saved just a sacrifice to the Lord. Well, who's that? Samuel asked, pointing at, pointing at a man. Him, well, that's Agag, king of the Amalekites, Saul answered. I brought him back here as a trophy. In actuality, we know that there were more people than King Agag who had been allowed to escape that day. Samuel then said to Saul, Because you have not obeyed the Lord, the kingdom has been taken from you. You have lost your authority, your opportunity, and your ministry. You're supposed to kill every Amalekite, but because you compromise, because you did things your way, you're going to regret it. Now, don't miss this. At the end of Saul's life, as he lays there, with his blood slowly ebbing away, who finally ends his life? Ironically, it was an Amalekite. Why would I make such a big issue concerning that? For one reason, there's a powerful lesson and warning lying underneath it. When it comes to sin, we must do all that we can to completely eradicate it from our lives. Because those things, those Amalekites that we allow to live, have the capability to one day destroy us. I would caution us all to be completely merciless with any lingering Amalekites that we may have allowed to linger in our lives. If you write stuff down, I would include this following statement. We must always be ruthless in our dealings with sin because sin will always, always be ruthless in its dealings with us. Verse 7, please. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and the saw and his sons were dead, 
they abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and lived in them. It came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now the word them in verse 9 is not in the original document. Literally it says, and they sent throughout the land of the Philistines. So it seems probable that they sent Saul's head and perhaps even parts of his body with his armor on this missionary journey with the good news that Saul has finally been slain. Can you imagine getting Saul's head in the mail? Now, we know the Bible says that Saul was a head taller than all the other Israelites. I guess that's no longer true, with his head getting cut off and all. Now he's just regular height. Now, we know that Saul feared of being mistreated or abused by the Philistines. His death, however, does not spare him that indignity. His headless corpse was impaled upon a wall, a public object of horror and disgust. Some people mount bass on their walls. These guys mounted heads. And for a Jew not to receive a proper burial was both humiliating and sacrilegious. And for the body to be mutilated and then exposed was even more scandalous. Some must have thought, I'll just have to take things into my own hand because a man has to do what a man has to do. And that's the irony of the whole thing. Because I'm trying to keep myself from being abused, he's going to end up being abused beyond any of his wildest nightmares. So too with us. We should all take note of this. Because often we try to wrestle control from the Lord in our lives by taking things into our own hands. When we do that, it will completely backfire in sometimes far worse ways than we could ever have imagined. Verse 11. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. That's very heroic. You wonder... What moved these men to do that sort of thing? Why would they risk their lives to recover the headless corpse of a judged king? I suggest it's because of something that had happened 40 years previously when Saul was presented to Israel as their king. Certain people applauded, long live the king, they said. But others said, we're not going to have this farmer from the tribe of Benjamin rule over us. And Saul realized that the opinion about him was divided. So he went back to his farm and plowed away until word reached him that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were in trouble. What had happened was Nahash the Ammonite had threatened to wage war against these men. And Saul was moved with such compassion that he rallied the other men of Israel. And with all the men who answered Saul's call, they marched all night to rescue the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead. And it would seem the men of Jabesh-Gilead never forgot that. 
And 40 years later, when he is naked and humiliated, the man to whom Saul had shown mercy now returned the favor. It's as if at the end of Saul's life, everything has been consumed. And the only thing remembered for good is the account that we are reading this morning. Luke 6.38, Jesus says, Whatever is measured out to you will be measured back to you. He was talking about mercy there. If we are those who learn mercy, if we are those who love mercy, mercy will be shown also to us. It might not happen for 40 years, but when we need it the most, it will be there. There was also another king whose body was pinned, not to a wall, but to a cross. The agony was unbelievable. The humiliation was unspeakable. He was spiritually decapitated as well, for he was the head of the church. But where was his body? Like Saul, his body all went to different places. Except for John, all the disciples had fled. And also, as we will see, like Saul, his body will have to be burned. Because Jesus was burned in the fire of God's righteous indignation poured out upon him on behalf of all of our sins. And so we say, I remember what you did for me. We were about to be done in by the enemy, but you came from heaven to rescue us. Others might not remember, and others might not care. But we of Jabesh Gilead remember what you did when you marched all night and came into the world to save us. It says their bodies were so mutilated, they had to be burned instead of buried. Now, as a side note, some wonder about creation, and some of creation, some people wonder about that too. But this is cremation, the other end of creation. And uh, some people actually condemn it. They argue that it's so disrespectful to the body and that a body should always be buried. But here is the only account of what you can consider cremation in the Bible, and it's neither pro nor con. So if someone argues that cremation is wrong, they're arguing about an issue on which the Scripture is completely silent except for this. And actually, this one incident is not condemned. I think what the problem is, is when some people think of cremation, they think of the fires of hell. Personally, this is the part you don't write in your notes. This is my opinion. I think it's just cheaper. And it does in two minutes what it might take 40 years for the normal process to do. The result is the same. You go back to dust. That's just a personal preference. Do whatever you want to do. I told Connie... If it were legal, I'd have her put me out with the trash on Wednesdays. <laughs> now, I realize there's some logistical concerns about that. I mean, she had to keep me refrigerated until that morning so I wouldn't stink. I think mean, we like our trash men. The point is, and there is one, once you die, your body is just the shell that held the real you. In my case, you could even say all that left is the shell. The nut has departed. I wonder if they knew how fitting it was to bury Saul under the tamarisk tree. 
If you remember a few chapters ago, at Gibeah, he used to sit under the tamarisk tree, a spear in his hand, powerful and surrounded by servants. His story ends with his bones buried under a tamarisk tree, stripped at last of any power whatsoever. In closing, in the movie's Casualties of War, Michael J. Fox plays a boy called Private Erickson. He was a soldier in Vietnam who was part of a squad that abuses a young Vietnamese girl. And though Private Erickson doesn't participate in the crime, he still struggles with what had happened. He tells the others, Just because each of us might at any second be blown away, we're acting like we can do anything that we want, as though it doesn't matter what we do. I'm thinking it's just the opposite. Because we might be dead in the next split second, maybe we ought to be extra careful about what we do. Because maybe it matters more. Maybe it matters more than we'll ever know. What I'm saying is, how you live will affect how you die. I'm not saying that if you live a good life, you'll die peaceably in your sleep at a ripe old age. I'm not saying if someone lives a wicked life, they will die in pain and horror. What I mean is that how you face death is determined by how you lived your life. How you live matters more than you know when it comes time for you to die. Therefore, let us all be wise this morning. Father, such a, a sober word today. I know it's something we don't like to think about, but Lord, it's important. And I pray that it would just spur us on and stir us up, knowing, Father, that unless you come back one day, we're going to cross over, Lord. We don't know when that day is. Help us to live a life, Lord, that when we do come to the end, we will look back over our lives and have no reservations and just be happy knowing that we live for you. Ask in your name. Amen.